Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, author, playwright and screenwriter Greg McGee comes to Going West to share his 2015 novel The Antipodeans, an intergenerational tale of love, blood and betrayal. We've got an hour. We're going to have some questions at the end. If at any time, until we get to the questions, you feel moved to ask something, um, yell out, stick up your hand. Um, It's not a huge crowd. Uh, If I feel like that's happening too often, I'll just tell you to stop. Um, I've been waiting 35 years for the opportunity to ask Greg McGee, what are ya? (laughs) And... To my horror, too late. <laughs> I find I've I've waited too long. Um, I asked my 16-year-old son yesterday um, if, during his career as a rugby player, anyone had ever said that to him, and he looked at me blankly. Um, yeah. The word has basically passed out of use, and I think you may be one of the reasons why. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Another snapshot of social change. Um, 35 years ago, there was some question as to whether the New Zealand Herald would accept an ad if it contained the extremely problematic word foreskin. Um, But Greg went ahead and used the title Foreskin's Lament anyway, and the Herald did agree to run the ad in the end, Um, and the play became one of the legendary hits of the New Zealand stage. And by hit, I mean that people emerged from it reeling. A year before the 81 Springbok tour, Greg held rugby culture up to us as a mirror, and we saw ourselves in it, and we jumped back and started arguing. I say we. I was 14 in 1980, and this was a play that contained actual foreskins. When people tell you that Greg is capable of stripping New Zealand masculinity naked, they are not merely indulging in metaphor. (laughs) So the odds of my Catholic parents allowing me to go to the play that year were exactly zero. (laughs) Um, 14, by coincidence. You've aged well. (laughs) Strange how few people tell me that. (laughs) 14 is the age you had to be until relatively recently if you wanted to read Ted Dawes Into the River. Um, That was between December 2013 and last month when the Film and Literature Board of Review decided to lift its R14 rating, which led to the family first complaint, which led to the current interim ban. And I mention this because although our country has changed out of all recognition since 1980, we still have idiotic censorship arguments. And we still have a deep liberal conservative split. And the question of social division what we do when we deeply disagree, how we deal with it, how we do or don't resolve it, is one of the key recurring issues in Greg's work. A related issue, what outlets we should and should not allow ourselves for aggression. Greg was an all-black trialist before he turned to the law and then to writing, and again and again in his work, you can see a kind of a devolution there, can't you? <laughs> I would like to say exactly the opposite. <laughs> again and again in your work, we see characters turning to the rugby field and to the law courts, both of them places where the desire to go head-to-head with someone can find expression for good and for bad. And this is very much to the fore in his latest novel. Now, as well as writing novels and screenplays and films and short stories, Greg has written a highly entertaining memoir called Tall Tales, Some True, um, which is where I learned that Foreskin's Lament actually began life in Italy. Uh, I believe you'd gone to Europe to write a novel. Yeah, I went back to the village I'd lived in to say goodbye, I was about to leave um, Italy and, and come home and leave, leave the Northern Hemisphere. I'd been away for about three years 
And so I went back to my village and we had a huge festa, which lasted three, about three days. After which I, I went to Sardinia to dry out, you know, basically. <laughs> I was sort of on the way. And uh, I was at a little village near Alghero called Ferratilia, which was full of Venetian fishermen, funnily enough, who had been relocated there by Mussolini. And I, and this, I began writing this play, The um, Foreskin's Lament, there, in the most un-New Zealand uh, environment you could possibly imagine. But somehow being away from this place gives you a frame of reference within which you can look at, in my case, some, uh, an experience that had been uh, really intense. My rugby involvement was pretty short, really, at the top level. But I was thrown into it very young. I was 19. And basically, I was, I was rehabbed out the door at about 23. Um, but uh, I had a short, intense um, involvement with an environment that I found uh, it, I'd always aspired to, but when I had it right there in front of me, I found hugely disappointing. And really, those, those years away um, enabled me to give a frame of reference to those really intense um, few years in rugby. And, and at the end of my stay in Italy, when I was sitting in Sardinia nursing a hangover, suddenly the Forskins event burst forth and, and I began writing it then. So this is far too pat and schematic, but you went to Italy. You started a writing career about New Zealand. You're in New yeah. Zealand all these years later. You've written a novel which is mostly set in Italy. And yeah. I want to ask you to um, read a little bit of it for us before yes. we talk about yeah. it. Certainly. Um. Can you hear me? Is that okay? Um, I bend over a wee bit. How's that? Um, I thought of reading a dramatic sequence from somewhere um, in the middle of the book, but um, I hate it when someone reads and has to explain the context and the characters and everything, and the explanation takes longer than the reading. So I thought I'll read the first chapter, which is a short chapter of the Antipodeans, and that way, those of you who haven't read the novel will have a, a sort of a first reader's introduction to it. Okay, so here we go. Venice, 2014. He had insisted they take a boat, an Ale Laguna, so that her first view of Venice would be from the water. She had asked whether that was wise. There was a low drizzle floating out of the early dusk at Marco Polo Airport, and he was already shivering as they walked to the jetty. Drizzle's good, he'd said, hauling on his suitcase. She had offered to pull it for him, told him she could easily do both, but he wouldn't have it. Now he was labouring as they arrived at a short gangway leading off the, down off the jetty. You'll feel the ghosts of the place, he said. That seemed so unlike him. Ghosts, Dad? He didn't answer. Perhaps he hadn't heard her. He'd always been selectively deaf, even when he was well. It had been one of the things that had driven her mother mad. As the, boat bus, as the boat bus droned along the channel, leaving a white wake trailing in the brown water and falling darkness, they passed a couple of islets with scruffy trees hiding all but the roof lines of industrial garages. There were boats on cradles having their bums wiped. It could have been one of the less attractive indentations of the Auckland Isthmus, lacking only mudflats and mangroves. He refused to sit. That didn't surprise her. The osteoarthritis in his knees had given him pain throughout the long flight. He stayed on his feet, hands gripping the rail, staring out across the barely ruffled water. Shallow, he said, treacherous. He pointed towards some lights out to the left, barely visible through the gloom. Franco and I used to fish off Murano. She saw his hands were shaking, big hands, more so recently as the flesh withered on his frame. Hands that looked as if they'd crutched lambs or milked cows or pruned vines. They mostly lied, those hands. He'd been brought up on a farm but had spent his working life as a solicitor, a self-styled, paper-pushing all-rounder who did conveyancing, corporate, trust, estates and matrimonial property in which he was not pleased to be currently acting for his only child. 
She wished it wasn't such an unholy mess. It was hard to say whether it had taken a toll on him. He wasn't a man who allowed emotion to leak. But she'd resolved before coming with him not to let her pain show. He was pointing to a cluster of lights on the other side, told her it was Mestre, the mainland city, then looked puzzled. There used to be huge gas flares and light towers over there. He addressed a question to the pilot, Dewar and overweight, who hadn't said a word to them or the other three passengers as he had taken their tickets and loaded their suitcases. The pilot seemed to have trouble understanding the question and her father the answer, but he eventually reported that many of the installations at the mainland port, Marghera, had been closed down because the pollutants were rotting her. Her? She had read a lot of guff about Venice. There was an awful lot of guff about Venice, and a fair bit of it had been so purple it could have been written by a desperate real estate agent. She should know. But her father's use of the female pronoun for a collection of old stones made her wonder. He was looking away into the darkness ahead. There she is, he said. Claire looked and could see nothing, still blinded by the lights of Mestre. Then she saw a wide, muted light sitting low on the water, which became buildings, none more than four or five storeys. The boat motored straight at them, slowing slightly, but not enough, she thought, instinctively looking for the wharf where they'd surely disembark. Suddenly they were amongst those old stones, between them, moving up what she should have known was a canal, which soon brought them to what her father told her was the Grand Canal. He'd also told her Venice wasn't a picture postcard, and he was right. It was an illustration from a fairy tale, the unimaginably ancient and detailed facades of the Palazzi, lit to show their Byzantine bones, seeming to float just above their reflection on the water. But between some of the grand houses, other smaller lanes of water led off into a gentle rose light thrown by lanterns, danced through by the drizzle, and everywhere boats, barges, big and small, carrying all manner of people and produce. She shouldn't have been surprised, and yet she was. She'd imagined Venice as a kind of a theme park with canals and striped-vested, straw-hatted gondoliers singing O Sole Mio, not a working city where the main street was water, plied by truck barges and boat buses carrying Coca-Cola and building materials and people. She heard her father say something in Italian, quietly, almost muttering to himself, Oh, che bella Venezia, mai fatto innamorare, non posso andare via. An impeccably dressed man in a hat and coat at the rail nearby overheard and turned in surprise and clapped his hands once and said, Bravo! What do you say, she asked. The words of a Venetian song, he said, Oh, beautiful Venice, I can never leave you. You've made me fall in love with you. She was stunned into silence. She'd heard him speak Italian before, but never heard him sing a song or even quote poetry. Like most of the lawyers she'd known through him, he fancied himself as a writer. She'd seen the florid letters and emails they wrote to each other. But with her father, at least, the oratund wordsmithery on the page had seldom come from his mouth. In that, too, he was true to his southern origins. It's pretty gorgeous, Dad, she said but found herself thinking that almost anything can look good at night, particularly if you've got a bit of water to reflect the lights. As the Yellow Laguna approached another bridge across the canal and slowed, she could see his hands were shaking. I came to hate this place, he said. I felt trapped. Okay, she thought, that's real. Now, I often choose the writers' festival sessions I attend on the basis of wanting to know whether or not I want to read someone's book. Um, so don't feel embarrassed in answering this question, but could I, could I have a show of hands? Who has actually read The Antipodeans? Well, that's a good chunk of you, um, but for the, well done. Slightly <laughs> for the slightly larger chunk who haven't, Greg, could you um, briefly describe the book? I'm putting that on you because um, it's, it's quite a big task. Yes. Um, I wrote the blurb at the back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
An ailing New Zealander returns to Venice, determined to confront his past. He's accompanied by his daughter, who is escaping hers. The Antipodean spans three generations of New Zealand and Italian families, from Venice to the South Island of New Zealand, from the assassination of a Gestapo commander in the last days of Italian resistance during World War II, to contemporary real estate shenanigans in Auckland, from political assassination in the darkest days of the Red Brigade to the vaulting cosmology of particle physics. And actually, the, uh, uh, another big part of it is, um, is obviously it's a quest for the past. And the epigraph at the front of the book is a quote from Tim Winton, which is very simple. It's from a short story he wrote, uh, Part of the Turning, called Aquifa. And it just says this, the past is in us, not behind us. And to some extent, the, the book is the discovery by Claire, who, who we just talked about, um, her discovery of uh, generational links with Italy going back to the um, last days of World War II. And um, so that although um, we follow um, a strand set in the World War II, two New Zealand soldiers who were prisoners of war and escaped into northern Italy at the time of the armistice in September 43 and ended up fighting with the Italian resistance. It's, the book is really a contemporary quest for um, uh, connections in the past. And Claire, I think, gradually discovers how the past, even if you don't fully comprehend the past, your own personal past, it's always informing your present. That's part of what makes the book so exciting to read. I mean, one of many, many things. It's a very complex book, um, but a very propulsive book to read. And part of the reason for that, I found, is that you so want to find out um, who all these people are and who they are to each other. We have three strands through three points of view. Um, there's the World War II strand which is seen through the eyes of a soldier called Joe. Um, eventually, we start to get the memories of Claire's father, Bruce, and there's Claire herself. So how is Joe connected to Bruce? Is he connected to Bruce? For the first little part of the book, I thought that Joe was Bruce, and then I did some simple maths and realised that no, he'd have to be 30 years older. Sorry um, to interrupt, but someone, someone suggested, a few readers have suggested that, that um, we put a, why, why isn't there a family tree up the front? <laughs> and I said, well, because it gives away. Because it gives oh. away the ending, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which makes talking about it slightly complicated in some respects. Um, very simply, how did this book come to exist? Um, yeah, the, I, I think it's been well publicised that it, it, it had a long gestation. But um, the, how the, long? Well, I th it began in about '78, I think, when I took my father I, and, and mother around the battlefields that he'd been involved with in Italy. So we went to Monte Cassino and Faenza and the Sangro. And um, you know, he, he stood there and looked at all the crosses and everything while Mum and I cried and. And he seemed relatively unmoved, but he probably was moved in his own way. But then I took him back to the village where I'd lived, and um, even though there'd been people in my village, men who had must have been involved in the war, had never been discussed um, in the year that I'd been living there. Can I just ask how you came to be living in Italy in the first place? I was over there. Uh, I was player coach for, a, for an Italian first division side. Rugby. Yeah, yeah, rugby. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I went to uh, Perugia, the Università per Stranieri, to, to learn Italian because um, I, I, was, I had to coach in Italian and went back to my village and discovered that um, not many of them, well, they spoke Italian, but not to each other. They mostly spoke dialect. So... Um, it was a difficult <laughs> first six months. <laughs> um, but th that's, that's what I was doing in Italy. And, and then when I took my father back to the bar, the, the, the men of war age started telling each other so safe stories, like Dad told the Italians about um, pl 
playing rugby in Piazza San Marco after the liberation of Venice, and they told him that Freiburg and the New Zealand Second Division were known to the Italians as Alibaba and as 40,000 thieves. <laughs> Be because they, the, the Kiwis, of course, could, could uh, you didn't have to worry about logistics so much on the front line because they could live off the land. And the Italians told me that uh, when the Kiwis are about, no sheep or pig was safe. And <clears throat> they didn't mean it in, in the Aussie sense. way. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. uh, and, and then that sort of broke the ice with, with the people in my village. And after Dad had gone, an old man took me back to his um, farm and he showed me uh, Starley with a, with, with a, there were still bullet holes from a, what he said was a stormtrooper submachine gun on the side of this, his stable. And he said they were shooting at a New Zealand escaped prisoner of war who had been hiding in the hayloft. And so I asked whether they'd, they'd got him, and he said no. And the last he'd heard of about this Kiwi, he was fighting with the Partigiani, the, the Italian partisans further north. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that there was an Italian resistance. I mean, the French are great at promoting their resistance. You know, they were basically a... a a country of collaborationists, but but you know, in retrospect, it's a bit like you know finding a supporter of the tour these days. Do we have any French people? <laughs> <in the world? laughs> but um, and um, and and so when I got back, I I I tried to find out as much as I could about about the the Italian resistance, and luckily I had a book written by a guy called Art Scott. And, and then after that, I had two splendid books by Susan Jacobs, who's sitting down the front row there. And, um, and I'd recommend those books. They're, they're full of the most amazing adventures. And so with, with that strand of story, I wasn't starting from, from nothing. But I didn't, I didn't just want it to be a war story. I was, I was fascinated by, when I went to Italy in the mid-70s, I'd come from a really quiet, conservative sort of New Zealand, and I ended up in a country where uh, the Red Brigade was blowing up banks, where the trains were full of, of conscripts, soldiers were everywhere, the, the sky was, was crisscrossed by NATO um, jets, vapour trails, and there was a real, real edge of danger, political danger there. In the June 76 election, the piazzas were full of neo-fascisti and, and communists, and most of the team I coached were communists. You know, they said they were communists, but there was red of various persuasions, from the lightest pink to the deepest red, and and everything was political. And so I I wanted to address that. And also, um, although it's really easy to understand our fascination with Italy, you know, the antiquity and design and the the, the culture and the rest of it. Um, you know, the Italians that I knew were also fascinated with New Zealand. They saw it as a romantic place at the other end of the earth which had the things they didn't have, fresh air and water and, um, and, and no people, you know. And uh, so I, you know, I began thinking in those terms of those two strands and then, then gradually the, the, the contemporary strand, I want, I, I, it took me ages to... It took me a long, long time to work out a structure of how I could tell three generations story. I didn't want it to be a conventional epic structure. I wanted it to be a fractured, fragmented, more of a jazz structure than... Oh, that's a uh, nice description. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, we could talk a bit more about that later, but um, I, I wanted it to be um, a contemporary quest for the past. I didn't want to be anchored in the past. And although it, it didn't really come together in my mind until um, I applied for the Catherine Mansfield Fellowship in late 2012, and I, I, I had to write you know, what the project was. And I wrote 20 pages about sort of how it would work. And probably the result is, is pretty much along those lines. And one of the keys to, the, to, to, to unlocking the structure was actually figuring out who was going to tell the story. And I know writers, there are many writers out there, and that is, that is a sort of an underrated um, part of 
finding way into a novel is deciding who is telling the story. And I had two, three different strands to decide which, which character was actually telling that part of the story. And, and that was the key to unlocking the, 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 the structure. But the actual writing of the book came in a rush. I, I, um, when I was awarded the Catherine Mansfield Fellowship, someone said to me, oh, there were 12 other applicants and they're all really good applicants. And I thought, holy hell. <laughs> you know, and I, I thought, and I, so I thought, thought, I don't want to get over there and have the book collapse on me. That, I just feel so guilty about the other writers who had missed out. So before I left, I had 30,000 words written and I wrote another 100,000 in Monton. And that was partly prompted by being so close to Italy. We were able to go across, drive across to Venice and the Veneto and see, walk in the steps of all those characters, find those places. And, and that, was, that, that really excited me. And, and I'd come back to, um, to Monton full of this stuff and just having to write it down. And then about, I think about two-thirds of the way through the novel, I got a kind of, in rugby terms, it would be described as white line fever. I, I, I could see the end, and I was worried about whether I'd ever get there. And, and um, I, Is white line fever considered a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, it can be a kind of a madness. You, you, you go for the try instead of passing to someone who's better positioned. <laughs> but I became terrified, really, of... Um, it is a really complex story, and I was holding all this stuff in my head, and I, I thought, you know... I'm not that bright, and I felt, I felt that if, if I didn't get it out and I stopped, I'd lose the thread and I'm, I probably wouldn't be able to find it again. That, so it, it, even though the gestation was really long, the, the writing of the... It's a big novel, but the writing came in, a, in a, quite a rush. It feels... It has that organic feel to it. It also has, both in its complexity and in its generational breadth, um, Claire's young, many of... The, the other characters, we of, we're often seeing them when they're young, um, but we also see them age, and it doesn't feel like a book that a young man could have written. Um, it feels like a book that you needed to take some time to get to the point in your life where you could write it. I'm interested in That's how true. present the story has been for you um, over the decades, because we jumped very quickly there from 78 to 2012. Um, and for most well, of that time, you weren't writing prose fiction at all. I mean, you, no. you were first known as a dramatist. You've done a lot of writing for the screen. Mm. Um, well, so that, first, yeah, how, how present has the book been in your mind? How present has the story been in your mind? Did you ever think of telling it as a play, for example? No, but I did think of it as, as um, telling it as a, as, as a film. And, and in those days, I, the, the, the working title was Los Stranero, the, the stranger, or more properly, the foreigner. And, um, and I had a, a friend, who, a producer, who really loved the idea of the story and thought it'd make a fabulous movie. At that stage, it was just two generations. It wasn't. It wasn't three. And which ones? The the first two. The, there was no contemporary story. Different so contemporary then. Yeah. Seventies. Mm. Well, no, no. There was no. That's right. There was no. No. The the. Uh, anyway, I you know the it it no there were three strands actually but um, uh, the. You know, every time he, he, this guy would say, look, I can give you some money to, to develop it. And there's something in the back of my head saying, no, no, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't. When, when projects come to me, they often come to me as um, in the form of television or film or play or, or, or an idea for a novel. And where I get into trouble is where I start confusing the two or... or adapting one to the other. Um, and I think it's quite important, if, if it comes to me as the idea for a novel, that I hold on to that. Um, so I 
looking yeah. quizzical because you spent so much of your career not writing novels at all. I mean, your first novel no. is 2010? Is that right? Well, that's the first one that was published. 2000, was that the Bosco one, the one of the... I, I say Greg's first novel. Um, what happened in 2010, I think it was, was, was that this rumour started going around that someone on the New Zealand literary scene, someone well-known, um, was writing under the pseudonym Alex Bosco. Alex Bosco was an Auckland-based successful writer who had not previously published a novel, and this was her first novel. Um, and it was a crime thriller. Uh, which one was that? That was Cut and Run. And it was Cut and Run. Yeah. You really like two-word titles. Yeah, and ampersands. You know, love yeah. and money and... <laughs> yeah. Tooth and claw, um, cut and run, skin and bone. Yeah. Um, I was getting quite confused. Yeah, I'm, I'm limited. <laughs> but, well, um, you... The, the Bosco thing's quite interesting, you know, um, because it, it seemed to a lot of people what a smart-ass thing to do, but actually I'd been writing this character called Anna Marcunas. She was the central character of, of the first uh, novel, uh, the Cut and Run, which was a whodunit. And uh, after I'd been living with her for the best part of a year, I began to feel really protective about it, and I thought that if my name was on the front of the book, she'd have no chance of being accepted as a credible character. Because, you know, if you, if you stick around long enough, other people tend to ascribe to you, um, you know, a kind of a thumbnail sketch about who you are and what you can do and what you can't do. And I think my thumbnail was, oh, McGee uh, played rugby, rights blokes. And I thought that would be a killer for Anna. So... Um, the, the publisher's never very happy about pseudonymous authors because um, there's not often much of a budget for publicity and advertising for New Zealand novels, and it really depends on the author trying to get um, interviews and, and reviews and so on. And so they weren't keen, but luckily my, my agent, Michael Gifkins, was enormously attracted to the idea of having a pseudonym. And uh, he took huge delight in, in, in working out what her, his name would be, or her name. And I, I wanted Bosco, because in Italian it means bush, which I thought was a good place to hide. And <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted Alex, because he wanted a, um, a sort of ambigenderous name. That, but we soon found, as the book approached publication, that we had to choose a gender for Alex. And... Eleanor Catton might be surprised by this, but both Michael and I felt that Alex Bosco had far better chances of success as a woman, perhaps because of the central woman character. But So Alex, or Alex as he called her, um, became a woman, and we watched with interest as she totted out into the world, and, uh, and did very well, you know, and... Uh, uh, and Michael took huge delight in acting for Alex Bosco, far more than acting for me, really. He, he, whenever I rang Michael, he would, um, as soon as Can he I heard... Can I talk to Alex? <laughs> as soon as he heard my voice, he would burst into laughter, and which I thought was a good sign in a literary agent for a while, you know. <laughs> but after about a year, and, and, and I, I became concerned that every time I rang my agent, he, he, he'd collapse in fits of giggles, and... I, so I plucked up the courage and said, Michael, do you, do you have this reaction when your other clients ring you, like when Lloyd rings? Do you, do and he admitted that he didn't, but when, <laughs> when, when he heard my voice, this hideous vision arose unbidden in front of his eyes of me in a frock. <laughs> and, and accompanied by questions like... Um, I think you'd look charming. <laughs> had I shaved my legs? Or what sort of underwear I'd slipped into this morning? And... Was I the sort of girl who would wear an up bra now. or no bra at all? And I think he, he Michael was, I, th I think, really disappointed when Alex had to come out of the closet and it was revealed as me. <laughs> when did that happen? Oh, it happened um, after the second novel was published, uh, Bosco's novel, Slaughter Falls. And when, when it was uh, made a finalist for the Nio Marsh, which Cut and Run had won the, the year before, I felt 
I had to come out really because um, the 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 cut and run had won the the inaugural uh, Nio Marsh, and there'd been no author to to collect the prize, and it'd been a bit of a disappointment. So I thought this time I'd better go down and you know, reveal myself, but also I knew I had Love and Money being published in my own name shortly. And I didn't want to get into a situation where some journalist came up to me and asked me directly, are you Alex Bosco? Because my name was being bandied around as well. Um, because I didn't, I hadn't had to actually lie to anyone's face up to that point. And I thought as soon as I start going out for interviews for Love and Money, I'll, I'll have to lie. And so, so the game was up. Yeah, that was probably really well judged. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever read the American novel Primary Colours? Is that the one about Clinton's... Um, well, well... Yeah, yeah, yeah very yeah. clearly based on yes. Bill, Bill Clinton's initial presidential campaign and written by someone who was very close to that campaign under a pseudonym. And eventually people figured out who it probably was, asked him to his face, he lied about it, and the lie became a huge distraction and a kind of public relations nightmare yeah. for a while. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, a writer, writer. I mean, you know, we, our profession is telling lies, but but um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't mind doing it. You know, when I'm being an author, but if someone stands in front of you and asks you, you know, are you Alex Bosco? I don't think I could have lied. You know. We are whipping through our hour, and I'm aware that I need to allow time for you guys to ask questions. Um, I have a few more um, before I throw the floor open, but um, if you have questions, get them ready. Uh, you said that ideas come to you for a novel, for a film, for a play, uh, but I'm still curious, given that you'd initially sat down to write a novel when you were in Europe back in the 70s, um, before turning to drama, why it was so many years before you came back to the novel as a form? Well, basically, um, I wanted to make a living as a writer, and. Um, oh, yeah, they kind know, of the, the, the success, fiction won't do the it. The success of Foreskin's Lament gave me a great start, but at that time the television industry, the drama industry, was just beginning, and I was lucky enough to be able to learn with the industry how to do television drama. And I, I couldn't have had the life that I've had without television drama. I mean, one of the television um, writing for television is is both seductive and instructive. Seductive because it's the stage development and you get paid f for each stage that you write. Unlike if, if you spend two years writing a play, um, unless you get some help from Creative New Zealand or something, you you spend that two years writing it and then you get 10% of, of, of uh, tickets, whoever comes to see it, if it is produced. So television just gave me a way of of being a working writer um, and and making a living because I never wanted to I never wanted to be an artist in a garret I wanted I, I wanted the, the things that everyone wants I wanted to be able to support a family I wanted a mortgage I wanted all those things and television really enabled me to do that and it's not um, you know I, I'm I was writing Television, commercial television, in those days shot on film, so it wasn't soap. It, it, and in many ways, it's, it's, it was a very instructive, kind of hard taskmaster to be involved with because television has many constraints. It devours story, and the, you constrain with language, with content, not, um, and, and with time. So you, you have to, you, you, in order to write series television, commercial series television, you, you have to understand narrative structure. You have to, um, you have to know about compression. And um, I found those, those lessons from television really important in my development as a writer. And I do wonder whether I would have had the control of a multi-act narrative structure to write the Antipodeans if I hadn't been so involved in television for so long. Um, when you, if you read Steve Bochco, who, who you know, um, is famous for Hill Street Blues, one of the great American writers, illustrates perfectly what television gives you. He, he's got such command of narrative structure and, and um, how characters can show, not, not tell. And that's one of the tricks of film, of course. You, know, you have to have, 
you have to be able to uh, construct a narrative that puts pressure on a character so that the, the, the character actually shows by his or her behaviour who he is. doesn't tell you about it. And Botchko wrote a book, and it's perfect television, lovely structure, but has no depth to the character at all. It's, it's sort of facile um, mastery of narrative without the depth that you need for, for prose. Um, and, you know, I think that that's why I say um, television is instructive but also quite seductive. That's the cliché of television of the Hill Street Blues era. I mean, the, the cliché of the moment is that we're in the televisual golden age. There is so much good long-form drama around at the moment. I saw someone ask on social media a little while ago why none of that great drama um, is being made in New Zealand, um, why we don't have great auteur-driven um, long-form drama. And I'm not going to ask you to answer that because uh, it's, it's an awkward question. It's quite a simple answer, though. We don't have cable TV. We don't have, we don't have the critical mass that enables us to um, you know, find an audience that can sustain uh, the production costs of a TV series. Um, New, Zealand's, New Zealand's great attribute, which is you know, lack of people in space, is also its huge flaw. If you're trying to sell anything into a domestic market, you know whether it be books or television, there just isn't the critical mass there to sustain um, a cable TV. So instance. although the Antipodeans would make a fantastic TV series, it's not going to be made in this country, I'm guessing. I, I don't know. Well, one, one of my huge regrets is that, um, uh, that New Zealand stories from the Second World War, for instance, will probably never be told because they require American budgets to... To, to shoot them. And so, because it's American money, um, probably the World War, World War II will, will carry on being won exhaustively on celluloid by Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you won't see any stories about us. Speaking of us, Murray. Yeah, so that's probably a good moment to ask for questions from the floor. And a hand just went up. Do we have microphones? Do we have microphones? Great. Greg, given we're on the cusp of the World Cup, um, you made a comment at the very start about your disappointment, um, and I wonder if you'd expand on that a wee bit. Uh, what was I disappointed about? Oh, about getting, getting sort of to the pinnacle in the sense of being um, how you've been characterised always as you know, all black, almost. Oh, yeah. Um, but you, you stepped away. Yeah, um, I think rugby, the, the modern game, is much more inclusive and egalitarian, funnily enough, because, because of the money. Back when I played, it was a brutal, uh, boring um, exercise at, at the top level, partly because the bodies were worth nothing, and, um, but also because uh, there was very little television c coverage and the touch judges couldn't intervene, so... What wasn't seen by the ref never happened. And uh, so um, a young kid like me with, um, you know, 19 years old and golden locks down to his shoulders was not going <laughs> to move easily in that environment. And, and I mean, you know, sometimes you, you have a goal that you aspire to since childhood. And, and if you're lucky enough to almost get there, almost reach it, and realise that it's not anything like you uh, imagined it would be. And that, that was my experience. There was a moment where um, you talk about playing in the All Black Trials. Well, I turned up to um, my first All Black Trial, and in those days there were two hotels in Wellington, the Grand and the Mids... Um, so, well, anyway, all the possibles for both matches were staying in the Grand, and I arrived up from Dunedin as a long-haired student and um, went into the dining room and there was only one place left at any of the tables and unfortunately it was the table with Griswiley and this huge guy with hands like plates called Alan Sutherland and, and some other moron. <laughs> <coughs> and so I sat down, because I couldn't sit anywhere else, and from the moment I sat down, 
until the end of the meal, not one word was spoken. Not one word was spoken by them, except Grizz. Um, when they brought out the gazpacho, Grizz said, fucking soup's cold. <laughs> and and, and I, I remember... I remember going. I remember the way we were. <laughs> I remember going to the match the next day and the trial, and thinking to myself, you know, because this was a trial for a tour of England. And those days went on for, you know, months, and I thought to myself, do I really want to be trapped in a bus in a hotel with those bastards? <laughs> and that was the beginning of the end, really. When my son announced last year that he was going to play rugby. Um, I didn't handle it terribly well, and <laughs> scenes like that are part of the reason why. I, I described some of the rugby playing anecdotes from your memoir um, yeah. to him this morning, and I'm pleased to say he was shocked. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't say, oh yeah, it's still like that, Dad. No, no, the, the, the good thing is now the medical backup is so much better, they can get you back on the field to be knocked up again so much quicker. <laughs> Do we have another question? Hello. Yeah. Um, Greg, good day. Look forward to reading the book. Um, I've just finished another rugby book called The Fixer by John Daniel, oh, yeah. which uh, is a very, I think, a very cleverly written book about a young New Zealander's slide uh, into the mire of um, people outside the game betting on the game. And I just wondered whether at the time uh, you were in Italy, whether there was any sign of that coming up then? No, I put my hand out, but I couldn't find anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, John, John uh, Daniel, he's a lovely guy. He's, he's now sort of resettled here in New Zealand. And um, he also wrote another book, um, which was a, a really interesting memoir called Confessions of a Rugby Mercenary, where he describes uh, going to France as a, an innocent sort of... Um, New Zealand footballer, and um, over the course of 10 years, learning how to eye gouge. So, to <laughs> I keep wanting to jump in with more questions. So, um, uh, no, I'm not going to because everybody's been waiting. But if you don't put your hands up, I will. No? Yeah, I can't see terribly well. No one else? Come on, there's someone. Um, I did want to ask uh, about the ways in which Harry, um, who's one of the young New Zealand soldiers in the book, reminded me of Clean from Foreskin's Lament. Um, it, does, it seems to me that there's an awful lot of dangerous alpha male types in your work. Yeah, well, they, I've, I've met you know, a few of these guys and they terrify the shit out of me. There's a... There is a, as a New Zealand male, uh, you know, alpha male. Some people sometimes mistake me, think I'm an alpha male. I'm nowhere near it. Um, but um, being over six foot, yeah, um, playing rugby—that's my only qualification. I'm hopeless at anything. <laughs> but but um, uh, yeah, uh, one one guy I know who read the Antipodeans uh, rang me up and said. I see Harry Spence everywhere. I'm not having a good day. <laughs> and, and um, you know, um, yeah, I guess you could say that if you looked at the pathology of a clean and um, uh, Harry, they would be, they probably would be psychopaths. But, um, but Harry, Harry was a creature made for war. Harry, in an environment where in northern Italy, where, where they were um, these escaped POWs, you know, had been given refuge by uh, mostly um, peasant families um, who were, had been anti-fascist all the way through. Um, Harry, most POWs who were in that, they were hunted like hares and and became paranoid and jumpy and that. Harry loved it. For Harry, it was the perfect environment. He never, he never considered that they were hunting him. He was hunting them because he knew where they were, but they didn't know where he was. And he, he is just an example of, of, of a, a man. And there were a few, you know, New Zealand men heroes who just thrived in, in war. And 
Um, I worked on in, in various things after during my university holidays with some of those ex-soldiers who described to me how wonderful their lives had been in war and how impoverished they were in peace. And these were men who, um, you know, found found peace in war, but could never find peace in peace. That's even more chilling when you've seen the ways in which the war affects Italy um, in the Antipodeans. And you do a really good job of showing how yeah. the lines blur and there's this kind of terrible moral convergence um, between the sides. They both become more and more willing to do absolutely every, anything and the, the people caught in between mm. um, are in this horrible, horrible position as the war comes into its final phase. Yeah, no one's really talked much about the political dimension of the book and one of, one of the things that the Italians were so surprised with the, the Kiwi soldiers that they met that they, they didn't appear to have a political framework for what they were doing. Here they were, they'd come from the other end of the earth to fight this war and when the Italians quizzed them on why they were here and what, what their political you know, uh, principles were for being there, they appeared to have none, often. Um, uh, now, whether, whether that was true or whether they, you know, they just didn't talk about them is something that the book examines when, at the aftermath of war, when the second division reached Trieste and, and also in Joe's journey when he gets back to New Zealand leading up to 1951, where, you know, um, a lot of those men had to declare themselves one way or another in 51. And um, it turns out that they did have a political framework. I'm slightly annoyed that I haven't managed to ask you about either quantum physics or real estate, both of, <laughs> both of which are vital presences in the book. Um, but we are very nearly out of time. Um, is anybody sitting there deeply frustrated because they haven't got to ask their question? That is such a classic New Zealand audience response, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> this is a classic New Zealand book. Um, join me in thanking Greg McGee. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.